0: Well, good morning, Harvest Muskoka, Harvest Prairie Sound. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, you got people who are coming up right now and they're, they're passing out Bibles right now. If you, if you need a Bible forgot a Bible, don't own a Bible, just throw your hand up. They'll get a Bible into your hands. If you don't own a Bible and you want a Bible, man, for sure throw your hand up, grab one of these, take it home as our gift to you But turn to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua, it's it's in the Old Testament Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, right? It's like the sixth book in. If you hit the Kings and Chronicles and Samuels, you've gone too far. Come back, all right? Joshua chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. And I'm actually kind of impressed that, that um, there's this many people here this morning, because I know last Sunday was a, a sermon on sin, and I said, guess what? We're going to talk about sin again, so come on back, right? And you came back, right? Some of you are like, no, I missed last Sunday. Nobody told me this, <laughs> all right? Listen, if, 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 um, if you like your coffee strong, this is Sunday for you, All right? If, if you like all that kind of Starbucks-y sort of syrups and sugars and make it not taste like coffee and I'll drink it, then this might be a tough Sunday for you, all right? We're, we're going to continue to press in on what does God say about sin, what, what about that sin in my heart, and so, so a lot of times as, as we come and gather together, I mean, we're, we're going we're gonna to talk, we're going to open up God's word, and I'll probably be funny, and we'll do, have jokes, and we'll laugh together, and, and there, there may not be as much of that this morning. But I'm convinced it's because what God wants to call us to is serious. It's important. Scripture says that the the spirit of this age, the God of this age, Satan, is is darkening the hearts and minds of people. And, and, And it says in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, So I preach Christ. And so this morning... I want us to lift up Christ. I want us to see what God says about sin, about righteousness, about holiness. So if you're in Joshua chapter 7, let let me catch you up here because we're jumping into the 7th chapter of of this this book. And you're going to, well, what happened before we got here? Because chapter 7 starts with this word. If you've got your your Bibles open, look at verse 1. It says, but the people of Israel. Well, but, but, but what? What happened before this but? Joshua 1 to 6, when you, when you start reading through the book of Joshua, you, you'll see all the way through the whole first part, Joshua is this leader who just sees victory after victory after victory. In fact, right before Joshua 7, you, you see him come against what, what was probably the most fortified city in the ancient world and, and they come up against this city called, called Jericho and archeological digs have revealed what this city would have looked like, how how powerful it was. It, it was surrounded by a huge wall all around the city. I mean, Trump would have loved this city, right? Make Jericho great again. Like he had this, this that was a joke, everybody. Okay, he had this, this wall. All, the, the archeologists discovered is there were actually two walls. There was a, a lower wall. About 15 feet high at the bottom of this huge embankment that went up to a, a second wall that was six feet thick and nearly 30 feet high. The Israelites took out this city by what? By they walked around Jericho, around the walls, they blew trumpets, they sang, and they shout. And God wins the victory. So they they come off of this massive, huge victory, a a mind-blowing, how did this happen? Only God could have done this. And then they come into chapter seven, and they come up to this small hick town of Ai. Verse one says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. What, what's he talking about? They're the devoted things. Well, well, earlier on, as they were coming into the promised land, God said, hey, as you guys defeat cities, you don't get to take all the plunder from that, right? We're not pirates. You're not coming in. You're gonna, you don't get to take all the spoils of victory. God says, in fact, anything that gets get spoil a spoil of victory, you, you keep that until you get into the heart of the promised land, and you're going to use that to build a temple for me, God says. goes on. It says here that this guy Achan took some of those spoils. So verse 2, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel. And he said to them, go up and spy out the land. And they went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, hey, don't have all the people go up. Let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't, don't make the whole people toil up there. So There's so few. And so about 3,000 men went up from the people and they fled before the men of Ai. The men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabaram and struck them at the descent and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Joshua tore his clothes and he fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He's just praying before God. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. That's just a, a way of saying we're, we're repenting. We don't know what's going on. And, and Joshua said, alas, O oh Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we've been content to dwell beyond the Jordan, O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us, cut off our name from the earth, and what will you do for your great name? I mean, Joshua is saying to God, hey, what's up, God? God. We take down this mighty city of Jericho, then lose to the hick town of AI. And, and you can see why Josh was confused. I mean, think about what, what this uh, would look like in our time. It, it would be like, like, a, like a team gets into the Olympics and, and, and they, they're, they're, they're kind of an underdog country, and yet they, they get all the way through, the, they, they beat Team Canada in the Olympics. And, and then they leave the Olympics and they come to Muskoka and they play our men's hockey team and, and they get defeated, right? That, that's kind of what it would be like. No offense, guys, all right? No offense. I heard, whoa, hey, easy, right? You guys aren't Team Canada, right? They, they beat the huge military stronghold, get beat by AI, so like what is going on? The Lord said to Joshua, verse 10 says, get up, why have you fallen to your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things they've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Verse 12 says, therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they become devoted for destruction. They're set apart for destruction now. They go from being a people of victory now to a people of destruction. Why, why? God says, because someone stole. Somebody stole. Somebody broke this covenant. Somebody took these things. So then Joshua begins this hunt. He goes, well, who is it? He starts to look and he finds out that it's this guy Achan. Look at verse 18. And he brought near his house Hold man by man, and Achan, the son of Car, my son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan had taken some of the spoils from the battle in Jericho and, and God had told him, hey, you're not supposed to do that. That's not yours to take. And then why would God have said that? God, God, God sets this up. You guys don't get the spoils because it's not your victory. God says, it's my victory. And, and if the Israelites could just grab whatever they wanted and take it for their own, they, they'd walk away from the battle of Jericho and, man, it's ours. We won that. Oh, really? Really? How'd you, how'd you beat Jericho? What was your strategy? Well, um, a lot of walking and some yelling. Right, right. God gets the glory for that victory. God then gets the spoils for that victory. So when, when Achan grabs some of these for himself, what, what he's saying is, this is my victory. I get the glory for this. And that one small sin sets them up for destruction. If you're taking notes this morning, here's what I want us to see. First is this. We need to have a God-centered perspective of sin. We need a God-centered perspective of sin. I mean, this whole point of, of this account for us here in Joshua 7 is to show us God's perspective on sin. I mean, if you think about it, we can can become so quick to just downplay sin. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm reading this, and the the first time I read through this, I'm thinking, what? Achan took a few things. He he hid a a couple things under his tent, and and 360 people have to die in battle? I mean, we're going to see as we keep reading here that, that Achan and his whole family are severely punished for this sin. And I'm thinking, just for that, hey, hey, don't come by my tent, man, because my tent is massive lumpy with stuff I've hid under there, sin that I've committed, and this one sin. And so what do we do? We try to blow off sin. and Well, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that bad. It's, it's not that destructive. My, my sin isn't that huge. You know, I love how C.S. Lewis, in, in his book, Screwtape Letters, it's this, this book where it's, it's just a, a book where he's imagining a, a senior demon writing to a junior demon how to, how to take out Christians. And the senior demon says to the junior demon, he says, hey, you'll say that, that these are very small sins, but remember the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the person from God. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that the cumulative effect is to keep the person away from the light." He goes on, he says, indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I mean, Satan's whole strategy is to to lull us to sleep as a church, as followers of Christ, to say, yeah, sin doesn't really matter. It doesn't make that big of a difference. This sin isn't too big of a sin. And, And the Lord says to Joshua twice, he said, Joshua, get up. Maybe as a church, we need to do the same. Hey, hey, get up. Wake up. I mean, what's at stake here? I mean, what's at stake with our sin is the glory of God. I mean, Joshua says, God, God, don't, don't lead us out here for us to be defeated. And, and God, your name is at stake. God, your glory is at stake. If, if we're a Christ follower, what we say as, as we follow Christ, here it is, it's not just some magic prayer you pray, it's a heart that says, Jesus, I'm following you with everything. You're everything to me. My life is about you. Amen. But then what happens, right? We, we end up grabbing for other things, and we, we start cramming those things under our tent. And what are we saying we do that? We, we grab for sin. What are we saying? We're saying, God, God, you're good, but you're not good enough. You got God. You're powerful, but you're not really powerful enough. God, this this thing I'm running to, this this comfort I'm grabbing a hold of, this sin that I want, this desire that I have—it's it's it's something I love more than you. It's got more glory than you. I, I care more about this than I care about your name. I mean, 1 Peter 1, 17 and 19, it talks about how to live our lives, be sober-minded, be be careful, be be aware of how you live your life because we we live our lives, how we live our lives demonstrates what we love. And, And Peter says, because you've not been bought with perishable things like gold or silver, you've been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So Christ follower, do you live in a way that people would look in and see that? Because when we, when we reach and we grab for these other things, what we're actually saying is, Jesus, I want this more. <clears throat> Jesus, I value this more. Jesus, I, I love this more. And when I continue to run to those things, when I continue to run after those sins, when, when my life doesn't look any different than somebody who isn't following Jesus, what are we saying about salvation? I'm actually saying Jesus doesn't really make any difference in my life. And and our lives are supposed to be this this commentary on the glory, the greatness of God. That's why God has saved you if you're a Christ follower. He doesn't save you to get you out of the going to hell line and just to put you in the going to heaven line. He saved you to transform you, to radically change you. Why? So that, that his glory would be made known through your life. So that the the people you work with, the the people you go to school with, the the people you live with would look in on your life and they they would see you reflecting the glory of God and how you live, how you deal with tough times, how you deal with good times. I mean, if if we claim to to be those who have been saved by Christ and, and we claim to call ourselves Christians, yet we hold so tightly to these other idols, these other sins, these other things we go to, what are we showing to a watching world? We're showing them this. God is not powerful. God is not holy. God is not loving. God does not give any victory over sin. I need this. Any sin, any sin, is a big deal in a Christian's life. So what do we need to do? If we want to gain this this God perspective, a radically God-centered view of sin, we have to embrace how God handles this sin here with Achan. And this is not going to be easy for us to read. In fact, I got to tell you, even as I was preparing this sermon, I'm reading through chapter seven and I'm getting to the end of chapter seven and I'm actually thinking, man, do I read this? Is there a way I could just summarize this? Could, could I just kind of end before we get there and kind of skim past this? Do, what do I, let, let me read it for you and you'll see what I mean. Look at verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with a silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and they brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel and they laid them down before the Lord and Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, with the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughter and his oxen and his donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring this trouble on us? And the Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised a Over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Acor. Acor means trouble. May anybody read that and think, man, that seems over the top. This guy, he, he, he takes a robe and, and, and some silver and gold and he hides. I mean, that's not a big deal. I mean, I mean I'm sure every one of us could stand up and go, wait, whoa, 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 I've got a better story than that for my own life. And yet because of that one sin, Achan and his whole family and his livestock brought before the people, taken outside of the camp. People pick up stones and they stone him and they burn him. I'll be honest with you, I find it hard to get my head wrapped around that. This is the same God who calls him to do this. This is the same God we were singing about this morning, saying that our hope is in him. And the problem is, man, I wanna, man. can we just skip those things? Those things make us uncomfortable. Can I get like a divine eraser and kind of erase all those parts out of scripture? I'll just take those verses out. The problem is that... that The Bible speaks of God's wrath more than 600 times. You read all through the Old Testament. You read about Sodom and Gomorrah where where God pours out his wrath on this wicked city and and Lot's wife, you know the story? They're leaving the city. They're being rescued from the city. She just turns to take a glance at the city being destroyed and she's annihilated. In Leviticus, a, a couple of Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu, they're priests, and they sin against God by, by worshiping, and, and God calls them, to, he commands them, hey, you worship in this way. We don't know exactly what they do, but they do something against the call of God, the command for how to lead in worship. They come before the Lord, and they're wiped out, it says. They're wiped out like Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom style, right? It says fire consumes them from the Holy of Holies. In Numbers 15, you keep reading, Numbers 15, we read about a guy, he's gathering firewood on the Sabbath, and it's, it's against God's law. So, so Moses grabs this guy, hey man, you're gathering fire on the, firewood on the Sabbath. He goes before God and says, hey Lord, Lord, what do we do with this guy? He's picking up some sticks, it's a Sabbath. Numbers 15, 35, God says the man must die. I mean, I could go on and on, and we can think, well wait a minute, wait a minute, that, that's like an Old Testament thing. God gets way nicer in the New Testament. He's way less cranky, way less angry. So why don't we talk New Testament, man? That's, we're a New Testament people. Let's uh, You ever read Acts chapter 5? Acts chapter 5, there's a story in the, the early church that, that people were selling everything they had to, to bring it to the church to, to be used to, to spread the gospel to help hurting people. And, and there, there wasn't a command. Like you didn't have to give everything, but people were. And so this, this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They sell this piece of property. Ananias comes in on a Sunday morning and he's like, hey man, I sold the property. Here's how much I sold it for. I'm giving it all. He didn't. He lied about it. He held some back. He didn't need to lie. He could have said, I sold it for this much and I'm gonna give this, but instead he wanted to look great. And Peter questions him, is this really what you sold it for? Yeah, it is. He dies. In church, dies. God takes him out. His wife comes later, all right? So I kind of picture it like they had two services. She's serving at Harvest Kids, right? And then she comes to the next service, okay? And she walks up and goes, and, and Peter says to her, hey, hey, your husband said that um, you guys sold a piece of property and you gave it all to the church. Is that true? She goes, yeah, every cent. And Peter says, see those guys back there? They just finished burying your husband. They're about to carry you out now. She dies. Would you come back to church the next Sunday, right? Imagine that happening here. Talk about severe. Here's the deal. I think we see the wrath of God as being way over the top because we see it from our perspective. I mean, obviously, if if somebody lies to you or does something against you, the the penalty shouldn't be death. But the point of Joshua 7 and, and the whole of Scripture that talks about God's wrath, it's not the size of the sin, it's who is sinned against. I mean if you sin against a tree stump, you kick it because it's in your way. There's there's really no penalty for that, right? You're not very guilty. You you sin against a person, you're very guilty. If you sin against God, you, you're infinitely guilty. Because because he's infinitely worthy of every ounce of your worship. And so one sin, no, no matter how small of a sin that it is against an infinite God, is infinitely offensive and, and his side and it deserves infinite punishment. No matter what the sin is. Because the, the very heart of what sin is, hey, hey, what is sin? The very heart of it is that we look in the face of our creator and we say, you're not good, your law is not good, your rule is not good. So I defy your divine authority. I I don't want your rule in my life. I'm gonna do what I want to do because I know what's better for me. I know what's better than you do. That's what sin is. Look at verse 21. You you see how how sin grabbed the hold of Achan's heart. He says, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and I took them. So so here's how sin grows in our hearts. Here's this sin. He says, I saw the stuff. I I saw these things. Now, the Hebrew word there for saw, it's, it's more than just I just glanced over and there they were. It's I gazed at them, I put them at the center of my attention. Now, he wasn't grabbing him right away, but he was was opening up his heart to the idea of, man, those would be good to have. He moved beyond that quick glance and noticing something and the staring at it, all right? After he was gazing at it, he took the next step. He started to value it. He, he, he actually like took the coat and went, hey, where's this thing from? Wow, Shinar, woo. I don't know what that means, but apparently it's really nice, right? Whoa, shoes, Italian leather, wow. He, he actually weighs the silver. He, he weighs the gold, giving them them importance, giving them them glory. They they become weighty to him and and the danger begins because sin's now taking this this place in his heart. In other words, becomes central to him. It carries more weight, more glory than God. He begins to say, man, I need these. I I need this sin. I I need this attitude. I, I need this person. I need this desire. I need that emotion. And you give it weight. You, you give it glory. I can't not do that. It has greater glory than God. And Achan saw it. He weighed it out. And then he says, I, I coveted it. And what's that mean to covet something? To covet something means you worship it. It, it. it means you adore it. So so whatever you glorify, whatever you say this has weight, it always leads to worship. That This is gonna become important in my life. I'm gonna be drawn to this, to worship it. His heart now fully engaged, he says, so I took it. How does this impact us? When we let sin do that in our lives, just a couple quick ways it impacts us. Here's our second point this morning. Sin short circuits the presence of God in our lives. Since short-circuits the presence of God in our lives. So, so what we see when, when Deuteronomy ends, Moses is, is coming to the end of his life. He passes on this mantle of leadership to Joshua. He says, Joshua, you're gonna take over now from me. And, and God says to Joshua at that moment, he says, I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna be with you just like I was with Moses. And then all the way through chapters one to six, repeated over and over again, you hear this phrase, I'll be with you, I'll go with you. I'm with you, Joshua. I'll, I'll be with you. Right up to the very end of chapter six, look at verse 27 of chapter six. So the Lord was with Joshua. He's with Joshua. Then you hit verse 12 of chapter seven. And God says, I'll be with you no more. I'll be with you, I'll be with you, I'll be with you. Now I'm with you no more. He says, unless you destroy the devoted things from you, unless you deal with this sin, uh, uh, my presence is gonna be short-circuited in your lives. What do I mean by short circuit? Here's what I mean. It doesn't mean that God's power and his presence are diminished. It just means it's short circuit between him and us. I was thinking about this. There was uh, a couple years ago, power went out in our house on a Saturday. Um, and, and, and it was out all day Saturday and then we got up for church, it was still out on Sunday, we go to church, we came back it's still out and Monday the power's still out, everybody else's power's on ours is still out, Tuesday power's still out and, and I was at work and, and Libby phoned, she goes oh, power's back on, I'm like oh great that's awesome, right on, she goes well actually um, it probably came on on Sunday but when, when we left for church on Sunday morning I was worried that while we're at church that the power might come on and, and, and stuff that, that shouldn't be on would be turned on and so I, I flicked the big breaker switch <clears throat> and I forgot. So, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, right, there was a, a disconnect. The power was still there, the power was available to us. But it was stopped, it was disconnected, it was short-circuited. So, so here you see Achan, his, his greed for these things dry up his passion for God. And he shifts his worship from God to these things. It wasn't that Achan didn't believe in God. It wasn't that Achan was this horrible person. He just shifted his worship to these things. So, so God's, God's work in our lives, God's presence in our lives... The whole point of it is that that we grow in seeing how glorious he is. Our love for him grows. Our satisfaction in him grows. That, That when life is tough, we're more satisfied in him. That all our time and treasure and talent are dedicated to him for his purposes and sin comes in and steals our hearts from that. We begin to see, we begin to gaze, we begin to put weight on other things. We, we let go of Christ and say, yeah, you're not enough. I'm gonna build my life on these things. And it becomes this faulty foundation we start to build our lives at. it. It's why I always say, hey, when you see sin in your life, why don't you look underneath and see what's, what's driving that sin, what's, what's the desire that's, that's driving that. You know, I'd ask, you know, why do my kids make me so angry sometimes? Is it because I wanna look good? And they're disobeying, is, is it because they're pushing in on my comfort, my desire for ease? You know, many, many guys think, you know what, I like I I still battle with lust, but but once I get married, man, it'll be taken care of. The underlying problem of, of self-control not dealt with, and guess what? You you go into marriage, and that, that sin follows with you into marriage because you don't get at the roots. When you see selfishness and anger and fear and anxiety and lust, there's, there's a root underneath those of we're seeking out salvation and hope outside of God. And left unchecked, Hebrews 3, 12 to 13 says, when we leave that unchecked, it leads us to have hard hearts. We start to wander away, and our hearts can grow hard where we don't even hear the Lord anymore. Some people wander by, they, do, they just don't, aren't showing up at church anymore. They're like, man, I'm not going to go this week. I'm not going to go next week. And you just kind of drift away, or you, you drift away from small group. Sometimes our hearts wander. We still show up in church, but we're the person sitting in church. Every time the pastor preaches, we think, man, that'll be good for so-and-so. Right? You know, man, he's not talking about me. And, and, and the pastor could be bringing some stuff that would be pressing in on your heart. He's, he's pointing, he's not talking, I'm not actually pointing at you, but right, maybe I am, right, no, I'm not, right? So, and you think, well, it can't be me, it can't be me, and our hearts grow hard, right? That's why John Owen says you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. We need to dig down deep at the roots and make sure the gospel goes down deep, that God's presence goes down deep, that it's God's God's presence and hope and purposes that we build our life on as our foundation. Now, here's the thing. God's promised for a Christ follower that he'll never leave you or forsake you. But, But listen, the fullness of God's presence is dependent on the purity of God's people. If we want to experience the fullness of God's presence... I mean, if the Spirit of God convicts your heart and you ignore him, you ignore what he's pressing in on, you continue in sin, how can we expect the Spirit of God to be able to lead us and guide us? How, how can we expect the Spirit of God to empower us? God wasn't with these guys here, wasn't with Joshua anymore, and the tiny town of Ai took them out. So what does Joshua do? He doesn't want to stay there. He falls on his face before God. He calls out for God's presence. God, we need your presence. Sin short circuits God's presence. Here's the, the third point, or last point. Sin short circuits the power of God in our lives. Not, not just the presence of God, but also the power of God. And here's the thing that should shock us when we see this story. It's not just the power of God in my personal life, The impact of private sin is never private. Because of Achan's sin, people died. Our sin is never private. The impact is never private. Husbands, here this morning, your sin is impacting your wife. Even if it's private, fathers, your sin impacting your family. Ladies, your sin impacting your family. Students, your sin impacting those around you. I mean, I think about this when I think about my three daughters. I mean, the thought of allowing impurity into my life that is going to impact my girls... I mean, I don't want to try to be too dramatic in this, but man, I tremble at that thought that, that instead of passing on righteousness to my kids, I could be passing on the destructive power of sin. Because here's the reality. There is no sin in my life that will not have an impact on my girls and on my wife. I don't want to pull them into that sin. So here's Joshua 7 coming as this, as this reminder that when we start to think, oh, no, 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 my sin's isolated. My sin's hidden under my tent. It, it won't affect, listen, it affects the people you love the most. And we think, no, it's, it's hidden. Nobody knows about it. My family doesn't even know about this. Nobody knows about this. They might not know it, but they're most definitely affected by it. No sin, no matter how small, no matter how much we can justify it, no matter how much Satan tries to convince us, oh, it's not a big deal. It's affecting the people we love. Husbands and fathers, if I I could talk to you for just a second, Scripture is so clear that you have this this God-given responsibility that you will stand before God accountable for, for the discipleship in your home. So what does that mean when I read this? It it, it convinces me, I gotta get up, man. I gotta go over to that tent of mine. I gotta dig up whatever I've got hiding under that tent because I don't want this to affect the family God's entrusted to me. Sin always impacts those around you. I mean, you, you can see how the power of God is, is short-circuited. When you, when you read verses like Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, it says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. He says, God can do anything. Then it says this, but your iniquities, your sin, has made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God, God can't hear you. I think about it in the book of Matthew in chapter 13 where Jesus comes into a town and he goes, man, I can't do any more in this town. Not because he didn't have the power, not because he didn't have the love or the grace to, to transform more lives. He says, I can't do it because of their unbelief. Because of their unwillingness to trust in Christ. Because as, as Jonah 2.8 says, we cling to worthless idols so we forfeit the grace that could have been ours. God's saying, I have everything for you. Yeah, but that's Old Testament stuff, man. It's different in the New Testament. It's different after the cross. James 4 says, your prayers aren't answered because of the idolatry and greed in your heart. 1 Peter says, hey, husbands, your prayers aren't answered because of how you treat your wives. I mean, think about this. What if I were to tell you right now that God has something that he so desperately wants to do in your family, in your church, in your community, but it's being hindered because of your sin, what sin would come to mind? I mean, God wants to do a mighty work of grace and and power, but the, the problem isn't God's power, isn't his grace. When you look in scripture, it would be God saying, listen, I've got so many plans. There's so many things I want to do, but your heart is so hard. I mean, whenever you see God move in history, whenever you see revivals sprout up and and, and countless lives change, they all begin in the same way. They begin with believers on their face before God repenting. I was reading a book when I was in my first year of Bible school by a guy named Jonathan Goforth. Jonathan Goldforth was a missionary in China. He saw incredible things happen in China, just just massive transformation. And he said, it didn't happen because we changed the way we did evangelism. It happened when missionaries got on their faces. He said this, he says, moreover, as far as our observation has led us, we have concluded that there must first be deep conviction among true followers of Christ before any expectation can be entertained of moving the others. He says, I've never witnessed anything more moving than when those missionaries one after another broke down before the people and confessed to the things that hindered in their lives. So here's my question for you. What is it that you desperately want to see God do in your life, in your family, in your church, in your community? What's that thing that you say, I, I can't do this on my own. This is a Jericho. I need the power of God here. And, and what if I said, hey, hey God's going to do that, but he can't because of something in you. What would that be? Listen, that, that's not always the reason why, why, why God's power isn't on display, but, but what if? In fact, let me ask it this way. I'm gonna put these two questions on the screen. If you were told that it was your sin that that keeps God from working in your family or your friends, what sin would come to mind? Or how about this? What passion most controls you? What are are you building your life on? What, What competes with Jesus for lordship over your actions? Because here's what I want to do as we end off this morning. I want us to again end off with a time of bringing things before the Lord. Think about those questions, seriously. If you need to write it down, write down your answers to that. And here's what I want us to do as the worship team comes up. Here's how you walk this out. It begins by being aware of what you're gazing at. Hey, hey, what is it that's grabbing my attention? What, what am, what am, what's my heart so easily turning to? What am I looking towards? Where's my gaze going? When there's nothing else going on in my life, when, I, when I've got some downtime, where's my heart and my thoughts go immediately? What is it that I comfort myself with? Where, where, where do my thoughts go most effortlessly? What, what unanswered prayer brings, brings heartache and bitterness and, and say, God, if you, if you don't give me this, then I can't worship you. I mean, what is that? What is that you're gazing at? I would say this. Here's what we do this morning. We take that, and it's not just the negative, but we grow in our affection for Jesus, that, that we, we see the gospel as being more than whatever it is we're being drawn to. Hebrews 12 doesn't just say, you know, run the race before you, cast off all the sin and the weight that easily entangles. It goes on and it says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. So so rather than just just turning from that, we turn towards the gospel. The Puritan Thomas Chalmers, he he called it this, the the expulsive power of a new affection. The only way to root out that, that sin in our heart is to have our heart wanting something else more. Loving something else more. Does God grip your heart? Does the gospel grab your heart? I mean, where where you see your heart drawn to certainty or, or to comfort, do you turn your heart and say, My certainty is in Christ that I belong to Him? And all other certainties can, can come under that. They have no power to that certainty. Does, does your heart go to, go to achievement or, or that people would think well of you and instead that your heart would be turned towards Jesus saying, you're my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Is your life filled with fear, or, or, or maybe you have this fear that maybe I don't matter, maybe my sin is too great, and then you start to turn your affection towards Jesus died for me. Like, why would he do that? I mean, that's the, the great paradox of the gospel. We come to Christ laying our lives down, saying, I'm nothing, I, I have nothing but sin to offer you, and it's only by your grace and mercy that, that you even accept me and change me and forgive me, and Jesus turns in that moment, and he says, I endured the cross for you. There's so many ways to clip the fruit of sin, but to, to deal with the root is when we embrace the gospel. Here's the grace in this story that we see the end of God's wrath poured out on Achan and we get to that place to say, that should be me. My tent has way more things hidden under it than just that one sin, but God's wrath was great, but his mercy was great too that he poured out that wrath on Christ on on your behalf. He he still takes sin so seriously, but he he doesn't take you out to stone you. Instead, he pours out his wrath on Jesus instead of you. I mean, that should blow us away. Just thinking of that should cause our hearts to say, sin is so serious. That stuff I'm hiding under my tent, I'm bringing it to the cross where Jesus says, I'll take care of that. I'll cover those completely. God says to his people in Isaiah, he says, I'll remember your sins no more. So why why would we ever keep anything hidden under the tent? My, My prayer is this, that this morning as we end off, that all across this room, that we're uncovering those hidden things. And we could hear God say to us, as he says in Hosea, he says, I can make the valley of Acor, that valley of trouble, he says, I'll make it a doorway of hope. That you see your sin and the brokenness and and all that comes with that. And God says, yeah, yeah, I'm glad you see it. It's a doorway to hope. That you bring that to the cross where you're forgiven, where you turn your gaze to him. So as we end off now, I wanna give you a few moments to think about those two questions. If you were told it was your sin, it stops God from moving in your life, what sin would that be? Bring that sin to the cross. Don't hide it any longer. That passion that controls that you're building as your foundation, what is that? Bring that to the cross. Turn your gaze instead to the gospel and find healing and life and the power and presence of God even this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord God, would you do a work even now would you turn our hearts towards you? Father, across this room, I know the heart cry of, of, of your children here is, the God, we want you to do a work. God, heal our families. God, transform our communities. God, 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 change our church. God, change our hearts. God, would your power and presence fall on this place, Lord God. And we know that it begins here. It begins when we repent, when we confess. We bring our hearts before you. We see you as our ultimate hope and our ultimate life. And our hearts turn towards that as our hope pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you take some time and just spend some time between you and the Lord.